And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. (laughs) Several weeks ago, I preached in this church um, from the first chapter of the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. In that chapter, whenever it referred to people going to worship, it said they went up to worship. And the Hebrews meant it theologically as well as geographically, that worship is properly an act of ascending to God. That chapter, chapter 1, was telling the story about Hannah finding her, finding God to be her highest good. That God is our highest good, and therefore we can ascend, we are ascending when we worship him. That God is our highest good is an objective truth, that it is That is, it is true whether we believe it or not. But Hannah had come not only to believe that God is our highest good, but she had also come to desire God as her deepest desire, her deepest subjective desire. Her worship in 1 Samuel 2, which is what what we've just heard read to us, That worship that Hannah then offered to God 
expressed that union of her subjective desire for God with the objective truth about God. When we read 1 Samuel 2, this passage that's before us today, you or I may not be subjectively where Hannah was when she offered that worship to God. As a result, you or I may find it hard to enter into the worship that she expressed. You or I may be burdened by troubles, struggling with unbelief, wallowing in self-pity, oppressed by fear, gripped by bitterness or envy. Even so, regardless of our subjective condition, even so, the the worship that Hannah offered expressed objective truth. God is our highest good. And that's why entering into this worship that we're reading today from Hannah, that's why entering into this worship can raise us toward God. And it can also form us into people who desire God as our deepest desire, as Hannah did. May it be so today in worship. I have been praying for that, that this this worship today might result in that, that we would be raised to God and formed into people who desire God. Let's pray for that right now. Lord our God, you are our highest good. We believe that. We know it is true. It is so. Now, Lord, would you also work in our hearts that we may desire you as our deepest desire. Make it so, Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus, looking to you for your grace. Amen. So let's get into it. Verse 1. Hannah is saying in verse 1, I love you, Lord. You are my, my deepest desire. She expresses that with four statements there in verse 1. The first one is, my heart exalts in the Lord. The heart is an ongoing theme all the way through the book of 1 Samuel. It is in contrast to the routine practice of worship that had no formative effect on some people. For example, the other wife in the family, Penina, who went up to worship in chapter 1, Year after year, same as Hannah did, except that Penina remained a cruel person. The worship was not having any formative effect on her. But here, Hannah is exulting. It means she is rejoicing in the Lord. Her second statement is, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Exalted in the Lord. Horn in scripture is a poetic symbol of strength or power. The verb, exalted, literally means raised up, but in a glorious way, so it's translated exalted. Hannah says, my strength is exalted in the Lord. And her third statement is, my mouth derides my enemies. The verb there is rachav. It means literally open wide. And I personally think that deride is an unfortunate translation for that verb 
in this context. Because deride connotes scorn and ridicule, which would be contrary to what Hannah says against pride and arrogance in verse 3. And rakav is used elsewhere in scripture in a much more positive and generous sense than deride. For example, in Isaiah 60, verse 5, that same verb, rachav, means to swell with joy. And in Ezekiel 41, 7, Ezekiel is having a vision of the temple of God. And as he ascends in the temple higher and higher, the rooms, he says, become larger and larger. And it's translated sometimes spacious. They become spacious. That's what rachav means. The verb's literal meaning, literal meaning is to open wide. My mouth opens wide toward my enemies. Now, opening wide is what our mouths do when we smile or when we laugh or when we speak boldly. Imagine smiling at your enemies when you are being treated unjustly, when you are being afflicted with disease, or even when you face death. Imagine smiling at people who harm you because you forgive them. To smile and to forgive by faith in God is to ascend from bitterness and from hatred. That's what Hannah is doing. And finally, she says that she does that because I rejoice in your salvation. That verb translated rejoice here, the Hebrew verb means to shine. So the Lord's salvation makes, Hannah's, makes Hannah shine with joy. That's what she's doing there, and that's what you and I can do when we say those same things to God. I find it valuable, in fact, to say these same four statements in my own praying. It cultivates in me a desire for God. But if you want to practice that in your praying, do notice that what moves Hannah's worship here is not her act of successfully raising herself to God, but rather it is God's act of raising her to himself. The Hebrew verb used there is rum, translated exalted. It occurs four times in Hannah's psalm of worship here. Here at the beginning in verse 1, it will happen again at the end in verse 10, and it happens twice in the middle of the psalm in verse 7, and then right away again in verse 8, though there it's translated lift, but it means exalted still. It's the same idea. So this verb, rum, frames the entire psalm from the first verse to the last verse, and it frames the first half of the psalm because it occurs again in verse 7, and then it frames again the second half of the psalm because it occurs again in verse 8. All four times, it is the Lord who does the exalting. So Hannah's taste of God's grace Exalting her is what moves Hannah to exult in the Lord. I have experienced that. 
I became a Christian at the age of 20 when I was a student at Washington University, and I put my faith in Christ after a long search investigating the Christian faith, for I did not grow up in a Christian home. I was learning about the Christian faith from a blank, searching to know if God is real after all. And finally, I came to Christ. After I put my faith in Christ, I looked back on that search, and I saw it as something that is expressed in a hymn which has become, therefore, one of my dearest hymns. It's a hymn, the first verse of which says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Seeing that God had sought me and pursued me and raised me and exalted me, I loved him for it. I still exult in his grace. And then, verses 2 and 3. These two verses invite us to enjoy God above all else because, as it says, there is no one else like you, Lord. Hannah considers in these two verses three possible comparisons to God. And in all three, the first word of the Hebrew sentence is the, is the negative word, trans, ayin. The word is ayin. It's translated none and none and then no. In Hebrew, saying ayin first in the sentence, which is not the normal word order in Hebrew, That declares all three of these comparisons to be emphatically impossible. First one is, is anyone holy like the Lord? In worship, we say, none is holy like the Lord. You, Lord, are pure, undefiled. There's no one else like you. And the second comparison is, is there any God besides the Lord? In worship, we say, none Besides you, Lord, you alone are God. And thirdly, is anyone a rock like our God? In worship, we say, no rock like our God. You are solidly, reliably, faithfully God, and no one else is. I rely on you above all. And yet, at the same time in these two verses, Hannah uses personal pronouns like you and our Using these pronouns when we take Hannah's worship and we pray the worship ourselves, using those pronouns, we get to worship God in actual relationship with this highly exalted, holy, holy, holy God. We speak our worship personally to God. We, we address him as you. Instead of just speaking about God, we address God directly. We speak worship with wonder and delight because this incomparable God is not a God distant from us, detached from us, but rather he has actually given himself to us and made himself our God. What formative effect can it have on us to worship God 
as Hannah does, if we enter into this worship and worship God for who he is, Hannah sees the effect that it has because it has, it has affected her in this way. She says it humbles us with no room left for pride or arrogance, for he is a God of knowledge. He knows us. He weighs our acts. So in worship, we confess that God is omniscient and omnipresent, always knowing us and everywhere present with us. Worshiping God, conscious of that, forms in us habits of living consciously and humbly in God's presence. Don't you desire that, to live in God's presence, even as your week has gone badly, as Dave said to us? We move on, verses 4 and 5. These two verses invite us to say to God, I am weak, but I love you for your promises. See, Hannah ascends here from her weakness to find strength in the Lord, and we can do that too. Hannah forms three poetic couplets to tell of the reversals which the Lord brings about in human weakness and human might. The first one is, the first couplet is about the mighty and the feeble. Hannah had suffered abuse, remember. She knows what it is to be weak. You may have suffered abuse from somebody, and you have experienced being weak. But we do not return abuse for abuse, because those weapons we know do not save us. The Lord is the one who saves us. That's why we worship him. As we affirm this in worship, we actually bind on strength, as it says. We bind on strength when we worship him out of our weakness. The second couplet is about the full and the hungry. Hannah suffered loss and deprivation. You may have so suffered, but we do not make it our deepest desire simply to want to have more of something. In worship, we wait on God in our weakness for him to provide for us. And the third couplet is about the barren and the one with many children. This one, of course, is deeply personal for Hannah to pray. But she does not make having more children than someone else her deepest desire. The one who does make that her deepest desire, even if she has many children, will be forlorn, Hannah says. Because, dear friends, as dear as our children are to us, our children are not our highest good. And if we make them our highest good, and if we make them our deepest desire, we will end up forlorn. And that leads us to verses 6 and 7, where Hannah says, Lord, you are my highest good. You are my highest good above anything else. And here, Hannah ascends especially to the great height of seeing that the Lord is what we call sovereign. And therefore she rests in him to be her highest good. 
The word sovereign means that God rules, and he rules supremely. He rules comprehensively. He rules over all things. All things are in his hands. So, as Hannah phrases it, the Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We have to stretch our minds to take in such comprehensive rule by a sovereign God. And in the end, we cannot comprehend it completely. So in the end, we must not reduce God to fit our finite minds, but rather we simply take it in as as completely as we can, and then we simply worship God for it. That's what Hannah is doing. That's what we can enter into by worshiping with Hannah's psalm. We worship God, the sovereign God, whom we cannot grasp, but we worship. I remember seeing, I remember leading a, a group of my university staff colleagues in a study of this psalm once. And after a while, one man said, you know, it is easy to praise God when we have received what we have wanted. Like Hannah, she has received her son that she wanted, so it's easy to praise God. But what about the woman who remains childless? That's a deep pain. And this man said, how is she going to worship? It's an excellent question, an important question. So I turned the question to the group to consider, and we, and we looked at the passage, and we studied it, and we finally settled on verses 6 and 7 here. Because verses 6 and 7 say... All human ends are in God's hands. We rest in his sovereign rule. The truth of God's sovereignty is precious to us because it results in the truth of God's providence to us. Here's how God's rule and God's providence are stated in the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you will remember this. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it poses the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That means we worship God, this sovereign God, even in our unfulfilled longings, because he is sovereign. We ascend to this lofty truth about God, that he is our all-powerful sovereign ruler, and he is at the same time our all-good and faithful provider. For both of those We worship him. Now, friends, in this, 
at this point in our worship, if you're, if you're praying this psalm, we have reached the thematic center of Hannah's entire psalm. By thematic center, I mean this. The literary structure of this psalm is called a chiasm. It's a literary device. You can picture it as a set of concentric circles. Each theme that you read as you read through the passage is one of those circles. And so as you read through a passage, you are passing through the first theme and the second theme and the third theme, third theme, however many there are, and you finally reach the center, and then you keep on reading, now going away from the center, out the other side of the passage, but you are meeting the same themes, again, because they wrap around as circles. And so the themes occur again, but in reverse order. That's what's happening here. These structures occur fairly often in the Bible, and it's valuable to identify a chiasm when it does occur, because the center of the chiasm is the center of the whole passage. It's the central point of the passage. So we don't want to miss it. The center here in this passage is that we worship God, who is our all-powerful, sovereign ruler and our all-good, faithful provider. So let's go on to the second half of the psalm and see how we revisit those themes. Verse 8 then invites you again to, to worship, saying, as you said in verse 6 and 7, you are our highest good, Lord. You rule as sovereign Lord. All things are in your hands. I trust in you. But this time, two realms are identified for God's sovereign rule and providence. First, the Lord rules the course of human lives, but Hannah prayed that in verses 6 and 7. But here, the emphasis, the emphasis is on the goodness of God in, with which he so rules. So, Hannah prays, he raises up the poor, he lifts the needy to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The seat of honor is a poetic image. Another poetic image, this one promises that God will treat those who have been poor and despised in this life, he will treat them with honor in his kingdom. Theologically, it points to the moral character of God, his character of mercy and goodness and righteousness and justice. With those traits, he rules. And so we may welcome the truth of God's sovereignty, even if we don't grasp it completely. It's beyond our minds. Nevertheless, we can worship God with it, and we can delight in it. We can welcome God's sovereign rule because he's, his rule is so thoroughly good. And then the second realm over which the Lord is sovereign is all of creation. Hannah prayed, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The pillars are another poetic image. It's an image of the Lord upholding the earth so that it continues to exist. Theologically, this one points to the self-existence of God, that God exists in and of himself, and everything else continues to exist only because God, the sovereign Lord, sustains its existence. We, therefore, can welcome, again, God's sovereign rule, this truth about God, even though we don't grasp it entirely. 
we welcome it because without it, we would not exist. That takes us to verse 9, which again invites us to come to God in our weakness, saying, God, I am weak, but I love you for your promises. Hannah sees here that God's providence prevails over human might. And this providence from God comforts and assures us in our weakness. This time, she prays only one couplet instead of three. The couplet is, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. But this time, she draws a principial conclusion. She says, for not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah knows this firsthand because Panina's cruelty, her power that Panina had over her, has not been able to define Hannah's life. So now as we join in worship, saying that part of Hannah's psalm, we find that we can admit our weakness. We can admit our weakness to God. We can admit our weakness and we do not need to rely on our might to overcome threats. We prevail by trusting God's promises. And then verse 10, but just the first half of verse 10. This invites us again to enjoy praising God who is alone God, no other God. Hannah praises God here with confidence that he, as the one true God, will break his adversaries to pieces. That means he will overcome evil. We now know, friends, that God would do that in the most astonishing way. He would, he would do that by invading Satan's realm, incarnate as a human baby of all things, and by living a sinless life in spite of all the evil that Satan threw at him. And he did it by taking our sin and death upon himself and then by rising from death in victory and by ascending to the heavens from which he now rules and by turning and from which he will return again for the final defeat of Satan and his demons. That's what God is doing. When Christ returns, Hannah says, he will judge the ends of the earth. His rule will overcome all evil. Hallelujah for that. Finally, verse 10b, the second half of the verse. This invites us to say, I love you, Lord, as we said in the first verse. I love you, Lord. You are my heart's deepest desire. Hannah's worship, back in verse 1, remember, was about how God had exalted her. But now in verse 10, she sees with an enlarged vision. She sees that the Lord will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed one. Now that's interesting because Hannah says that at a time in Israel's history when there was no king over Israel. Some people therefore conclude that that last line of Hannah's psalm was was added to the text later on after David became king. And I can see why people would think that. It would make sense of it. Nevertheless, it's possible for Hannah to have said exactly what's printed here because Hannah did know about kings from the surrounding peoples. And she knew of anointing as a practice from Old Test- earlier Old Testament books. Priests were anointed. 
But the most important factor, I think, in this is that Hannah has ascended, as we have seen, to heights of worship to see the sovereign God as her highest good. To me, it is consistent that her lofty ascent in worship to see this about God would form in her um, an enlarged vision of God's purposes. I don't know how much of Hannah's realization of this came by logical deduction or by mystical experience, but I can tell you this. Hannah is the first person in the canon of Scripture to use the term the Lord's anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach or Messiah. The first person in the biblical canon to foretell the Messiah is a woman, just as the first person in the New Testament to see the risen Christ and to go and tell, bear witness to other people about the risen Christ was a woman, Mary Magdalene. This realization by Hannah is fulfilled in the short term by David, a king after God's own heart, and would be fulfilled in the long term by Christ himself, the perfect and eternal king. And now we, like Hannah, can ascend from our pain to God because God in Christ has descended to us. God entered our pain and suffering to raise us to himself. He has taken his sins upon himself, and then he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and now he raises us. No other religion in the world believes this about their God. No other religion believes that God has entered our pain to raise us to himself. We can now, therefore, ascend. We actually can ascend toward God because Jesus has descended to us. We will rise because Jesus has risen for us. And for this, we worship him. That's why we can enter into Hannah's psalm as our worship. One closing story. It's about your former deceased pastor, Pastor Kurt Lechens. When your pastor, Kurt, was dying of cancer, I went to him in the hospital. They had him seated in a chair, I could see as I came to the door. They had him seated in a chair, and though he hadn't noticed me yet in the doorway, I could see him wincing with pain and squirming with pain. He was in intense pain from his bone cancer. So I entered the room and walked over to him, and I knelt down by his chair to be at eye level with him. And when he saw me, his first words to me were not a word of greeting like, Hi, George. Thanks for coming. His very first words to me were these. I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, God's sovereignty, God's providence, that's what your pastor Kurt knew and believed and was holding on to. I want to live my life saying that. I want to worship saying that.
And someday I want to die saying that. Amen.